Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So I got back from my deployment on September um, 2017, February 2018, so a couple of months later, I was getting these really, really bad recurring headaches. And really it just became that, yeah, mate, we, we can give you something, but just because you're in the army, it's very easy for us to get you a CAT scan. And I guess the first time I ever found out something might not be right was it was actually the radiologist rang me, basically like, hey, mate, I can't tell you anything because I'm not your doctor, but you need to go and see your doctor straight yes. away. I've left an email. Sir. Sure. Reflection of the real world. Nothing happens in the world. Are you out of your fucking mind? Welcome to A Theory of Mind, a podcast about brains, minds, and the psyche from me, author and biographer Ben McKelvey. Each week I sit down with someone about the lived in experience of change, and this week my guest is Matt Willie Williams AM, a 25 year old Adelaide man who's already lived more lives than most. By the age of 22, Willie had already trained as a rifleman, deployed to Afghanistan as a crew commander, and had also discovered an inoperable growth in his brain, something that would be with him for the rest of his life. In the three years since that discovery, Willie has become an inspirational figure, refusing to simply be a passenger in the cruel vehicle he's found himself in. Instead, he's becoming a fundraising machine, with his efforts putting tens of thousands of dollars towards brain cancer research. Furthermore, Willie has given himself purpose and passion in the service of others. He's found a bright light in a dark time and was recently recognised with the Order of Australia Medal. I really enjoyed talking to Willie about service and hope after spending a little time talking also about his time in Afghanistan. At the end of our conversation, Willie details where you can find him and how you can contribute, but I thought I'd put it here at the top of the show also. On Facebook and Instagram, Willie is willie.beating.cancer. And on both pages, there are donation links to the Charlie Teo Foundation. If you want to stay in touch with the show, you can do so at my Instagram, which is at Benny Merck, B-E-N-N-Y-M-C-K. And without further ado, Matt Willie Williams. It's, it's a weird one with me getting in the military because I didn't have a family that really served. Um, I had a couple of, you know, uncles and whatever that were reserves but nothing really direct family that had a big military career. Um, so I don't really know where the passion first sort of came from to join, uh, to join the army but from ever since I can remember um, it's been there wanting to join and I think mum and dad probably thought it was a bit of a phase and then, you know, next thing, I'm in year 12 and I'm signing up and then leaving school to go. Um, and I think it became awfully real for them. But, look, the, the the passion has always been, you know, the same as anyone will say. You know, there's always that bit of wanting to serve and, you know, it's a good job and all that. But I think for a lot of people joining the army, it's just something they couldn't really put their finger on why they're doing it. 
it's just something they feel like they need to do. What were the strong associations that you had with the army before you actually joined? The things that you saw yourself doing that you that was attractive to you? Yeah. Um, look, I just wanted to like have a job where I was out with the boys working. Um, you know, you always uh, think you know the army's always different to what you imagine, I guess. But you know, I was I grew up. Um, I was sort of, you know, that year nine to 12 bracket, um, you know, when the heaviest fighting in Afghan was going on. Um, like I joined the army in 2014. So, you know, in those, you know, 2010 to 14, when I was, you know, at that age of thinking of joining, like really seriously thinking of joining, um, you know, there was a lot of stuff coming back from um, Afghanistan of not only, you know, tragically guys being killed, but also, you know, footage of, you know, guys on the ground doing the job on the tools. Um, and I think that's what um, I really envisioned myself doing and that's all I wanted to do. Um, and I guess that was the one way of doing it. There's no other way of doing that job um, than joining up. So it, it, there was an attraction to what was actually being done on the battlefield. It wasn't something else. It wasn't like a stable job. I mean, you know, these would have been things that you would have been thinking about as well, you know, the salary and stuff like that. But you saw yourself on the ground in Afghanistan because you had seen that imagery when you were at that sort of um, – at that really fertile age, sort of around year 9 and 10. That's all it was. And it, and it always has been that too, you know. Um, and it, it's always just been that attraction to the battlefield. Um, like I'm an absolute sack of a barrack soldier, um, like terrible. Um, but, you know, it's always been about, you know, um, you know, doing the field to be on the battlefield. Um, now a lot of modern soldiers don't get that opportunity. Um, but it's always been, you know, that, that's where it's, that's where the job ends. That's the, that's the pointy bit of the job. Um, and that's always been the attraction and still is the attraction if, you know, if Australia rolled back on full scale into a a war um, and they needed guys on that battlefield, that's, you know, I'd be the first one on the line re-signing back up. Tell me about your deployment. I understand you, you had one uh, Afghan deployment, is that correct? Yeah, one um, Afghan deployment on Operation High Road in 17. Tell me about it and tell me, you know, the things that, uh, you know, the expectations that were met and also the things that were super surprising for you. Did you have a lot of interactions with Afghans? Did you have a – were you working with, you know, mentoring task force or something like that? Yeah, so we were on the FPE, so the force uh, protection element. Um, so it was a very different deployment to um, the early day Afghan um, MTFs, MRTFs, ATF trips. Um, you know, and I think in some ways as an infantryman, uh, as a person incredibly um, – incredibly awesome experience and a growing experience as an infantryman, you know, it was probably some parts very below our job, you know, you know, of the, the kill and capture the enemy phase wasn't there. Um, we were there as force protection for, you know, VIPs, um, and for the mentoring of Afghan, um, soldiers. But, um, in that of the Australian regular forces, we, that is the highest, you know, sort of deployment we had at the time. It wasn't like the other one of the other RARs was on a gunfighter mission down south. It wasn't. We were of the regular army. We were it. Um, you know, the, the tip of the spear, so to speak. So it was sort of like, well, this is the best we're going to get. Um, and I guess what separates it from a lot is, you know, there was so many moving parts and elements that we had exposure to from, you know, moving around the city in Kabul 
um, interacting with the local um, police and security forces and a lot of other nations um, all the way through to, you know, on the ground, um, you know, task group training, you know, um, proving a route before someone else drove down it, whatever. Um, but as far as warfighter stuff, it just didn't really happen for us. So you were there in 2017. And by 2017, the war is, uh, you know, the, the war is, is phase changing in that it's, it's concluded that the Taliban are going to be given a large part of the country. Um, and a lot of the things that Australia tried to do in Uruzgan, you know, they just weren't going to happen because we were such a small part of, of a larger picture. Was that something that you thought about much over there? Was that something that you guys talked about at all? Yeah, it became something very, um, very relevant for us over there. Was when um, ground one in Uruzgan by the Australian and coalition forces was starting to be taken back and lost um, to the Taliban or you know other terrorist organisations. Um, now myself, you know, that was my first deployment, but of course a lot of the section commanders at the time were you know down south in Afghan you know, fighting, um, really fighting the war that was by 2017 and current um, being lost. Um, and it became a bit of a, a weird feeling for a lot of the guys I know when it was like, you know, such and such died to take that land and now we're handing it all back. Um, we should be doing anything we can to hold it. You know, were these lives lost worth it? If in, you know, five years, ten years, we're just handing it all back. Um and that overall picture, I know, you know, it's changed a lot from, you know, taking the fight to them to training people to take the fight with them. Um, but there was an element of why aren't we rolling out the door um, alongside the guys we're training? You actually just transitioned out of the army, uh, literally. What was it? A couple of days ago? Yeah. Uh, so today's Friday, and my last day was Tuesday. So a couple of days. So we, you know, we're going to get to the, you know, the the, the big meaty story in between. Um, but how did you, how did you feel about you know um, knowing that you were going to be a civilian? Uh, you knowing that you 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 were going to be defined in a different way. It's something that a lot of people have have had a lot of issues with. But you know, how did you how did you feel? It was a weird, like a, a completely weird feeling of like, you know, that I don't. Um, it's it's weird that I just can't like walk back on the base. You know, I've, I've served at 7R at RAF Edinburgh for so long. Um, you know, I even lived there for a couple of years when I lived on on the barracks. Um, it's just a, it's been such a big part of my life that it was something I really took for granted, just being in the army, seeing the boys every day um, and everything in between. Um, and now there's that sort of loss of not only, you know, people talk a lot about loss of identity, but I think it's just loss of such a big part too. You know, it was something I did for eight or nine hours every day of my life. Um, you know, and especially, you know, having guys, um, when I was a, a section commander, it, you know, became a 24 hour job where, you know, guys be hitting me up, you know, text me on a, any day, like, Hey, who do I put leave in through or, or just whatever. Um, and now there's a loss of, you know, a lot of work. Um, you know, that might sound brilliant to some people, but it was, it's something that's weird. It's like, Oh shit, what do I, what do I do now? How do I fill in my day? Well, let's talk about the chunk in between, you know, in between Afghan and here. Um, so you have, you know, had some um, some medical issues and maladies. Um, can you tell me about when you first had an understanding of what was happening to you? Yeah, so it was um, – so I got back from my deployment on September um, 2017 
Um, and then, you know, there's some courses and whatever in between that. But then February 2018, so a couple of months later, um, I was getting these really, really bad recurring headaches um, and couldn't shake them without, you know, taking a, a fair chunk of codeine. Um, but it was in that same week of February 18 that codeine became a prescription drug only um, and the fear of then getting drug tested and getting booted um, came very alive. So uh, my solution, you know, go down to the med centre, cop shit off the lads for going down there as, as you do, um, especially if it's a pack March Friday, um, go down there and then, you know, find out what the hell's going on so I can get a um, prescription for some drugs. And really it just became um, that, yeah, mate, we, we can give you something but just because you're in the army, um, it's very easy for us to get you a CAT scan um, so we'll give you a scan. Uh, and I guess the first time I ever found out something might not be right was it was actually the radiologist rang me while my drive back to work after the CAT scan. Basically like, hey, mate, I can't tell you anything because I'm not your doctor, but you need to go and see your doctor straight away. I've left an email with him. Um, and then rocking straight back up to the med centre again and having pretty much getting handed um, a referral to go and get an MRI um, because they'd found like a shady spot in my brain. Can you tell me about that staggered experience of getting the phone call and saying, okay, mate, you need to talk to your doctor after getting a, you know, a CAT scan in the head. I, I can only imagine the panic that would have been coursing through my veins, and especially afterwards where he's like, okay, we've seen a shadow. What, what was your mind state? You know, how were you feeling? My mind wasn't even like considering it could be the extent of what it is. Um, I was thinking more, ah, uh, you know, there's fucking whatever, like, you know, it's a cyst or it's a, fuck up in the x-ray or what? like I didn't even think it was, you know, they had potential to be what it was. Um, so I guess it wasn't really panic. It was more of like, oh, for God's sake, I have to, you know, drive back to work, get on the base and then drive back out to someone to get a bloody MRI, like for God's sake. And then you got your, your fMRI um, and at that point did you get a, a solid diagnosis? Well, no, not even then. So I had the MRI and then a referral, an emergency referral to see a neurosurgeon. Um, and that surgeon basically was like, mate, look, we can, we can see it pretty well. This is here. He showed me the large thing. Um, and I was incredibly surprised by how bloody big it was. I thought, you know, it's like when you break your arm, you get a, a, get an X-ray or CAT scan. It's like, oh, here's the break. And it's this hairline fucking fracture you can barely see. Um, you know, I'm guessing you've seen the scans I've put on, um, Instagram that it pops up and it's a 40 millimeter, um, shadow in my brain. You know, they do a side MRI and a top down, so it's, you know, it's 40 millimetres across and 38 millimetres deep. I'm like, holy shit, like that's big. Like that, you know, that's bigger than a golf ball big um, in my fucking head. Um, and from there it was, look, mate, we can see it. We can look at the density and the sort of line it up with what we think it could be. But we need to cut you open and take a biopsy of what this is um, to actually find out, you know, what it actually is in your head. And so they, um, they were doing that almost immediately. So, you you know, you you got your CAT scan on your Friday and I can imagine it would have been, you know, within a week that they were like, okay, we want to cut your head open. Oh, well within. We all, this like all happened within like, you know, the next week at work. Yeah. Um, anyway, next thing I'm on a, you know, my first ever surgery. I'm on a bloody hospital bench, you know, um, going into a, a neurosurgery, you know, cutting open, drilling through my brain, actually drilling through my skull to take a bit of the tumour. Um, the biggest thing I didn't understand in this uh, was that I woke up out of the um, out of the surgery, and any any surgery is traumatic on the body. 
um, and I'd say probably especially on your brain. Um, it doesn't matter how minor or major it is because this is a pretty minor brain surgery, but a brain surgery is still um, it's pretty traumatic on, on the head. You know, you, you wake up not feeling too great. I mean, poking your bloody brain after all. Um, but the, probably the biggest thing I didn't understand out of this was I was expecting to get the pathology results of the tumour almost right away, like a blood test. What I didn't understand when I woke up was that the sample they'd taken has to go to a lab and get tested and whatever, and it can take six to eight weeks um, to get the result back. So I'm hanging in absolute limbo of like, well, shit, you know, is this something that could kill me in a week? or is completely benign and, no, don't worry about it. So Um, that's what they told you that they were testing, that they were testing, you know, whether it was malignant, whether it was benign, whether it was aggressive, you know, whether it was cancerous. Yeah, they they more just need to figure out what exactly it is. Like what is the designation of this tumour? What type is it? Is it growing? You know, is it what stage cancer is it? Whatever. Um, And I thought I'd know all this information straight away. Because having bad news is easier than hanging in limbo. Um, and it was – and probably the biggest breakdown I had in this was, say, seven weeks from there, um, over a hard seven weeks because I don't know what's going on, um, I get a call, I call up like the day before I was meant to go to a, an, another appointment. Hey, mate, yeah, we're cancelling your appointment. We um, Someone's forgotten to do one of the tests. It's going to be another two weeks. Um and me just completely cracking the shits and sort of losing my mind because I'm like, I've just waited seven weeks to, you know, in limbo trying to get these results. Um, that's just a terrible feeling. And I was meant, I was, you know, mentally prepared to get them, you know, tomorrow. And now someone somewhere has had a fuck up um, and it's going to be another couple of weeks. How, how did you manage those that, weeks? How did you manage um, your mental state? How did you manage your anxiety? Look, those those first weeks not well, uh, not not well at all. There's a lot of drinking, um, a lot of going out, a lot of you know, casual sex, a lot of fucking weird shit. Did you tell um, people? Yeah, yeah, I told everyone. I was I was very open about it all, um, in the beginning, uh, and I think that was probably probably the biggest blessing I've ever done is being um, particularly open about it. Um, but like those weeks are pretty much just a blur of stress um in my head like you know i couldn't tell you day to day but you know very very unproductive weeks of my life um because i didn't know whether i was dying in a day or dying in you know normal time in 70 years but i I just had no idea yeah and you know outside of you know drinking uh casual sex you know doing all the like compressing the 20s into into you know just a few weeks um did your mindset change at all? Did you know? Was there was there any uh, you know? Were there any feelings of grace? Were there any feelings of? Did anything good come out of that period or not? Um, look, I think you could probably pull good parts out of it. Being like you know, um, if I ever went down that path again, you know, I'd be able to recognise issues. Um, like oh shit, I'm not feeling well. But you know, in those initial weeks. Not much good comes of, you know, a mental state that sort of rough. Um, like I just had no drive to do anything um, but drink and fuck around. Um, so I, I guess the good thing that came out of it was, I guess, hitting a bit of rock bottom and then, you know, re-piecing everything back together once the diagnosis came. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's an incredibly hard time. 
Tell me about when that diagnosis came. Tell me, um, you know, tell me everything you remember about that moment. Yeah, so it came on um, March 9th. And I, I remember that because that was um, – it was one day before my birthday, which is March 10th. Um, and I remember all I got was instead of seeing the neurosurgeon, I got like a text for an appointment um, to go – to see an oncologist and I didn't even know what the hell an oncologist was um, until I Googled, um, until I Googled it and, and it turns out, you know, cancer clinic, cancer doctor. Um, anyway, ended up walking in, seeing this oncologist, getting the diagnosis of uh, the glioma tumour in my brain um, and just that sinking feeling, like the same sort of feeling as if you broke up with your long-term partner um, where you're just like, what? Like it's just an unbelievable uh, thing but you know it was at least at that point I had something solid uh, like a solid diagnosis you know I knew what it was um, but then of course you know that that's when they start looking at treatment options and everything from there hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Now, you like every good soldier when some when you're presented with a problem, um, then I find that soldiers are very sort of process driven. You know, they sort of figure out what the problem is. They, they, they sort of address it and they say, okay, what we have to do now is X, Y, and Z. Um, when mm. you have, you know, medical malady, like, like you were presented with, um, things are sort of out of your hands to a certain extent. So how did you empower yourself? How did you say, okay, I'm going to be part of the process. This is what I'm going to do for myself. Yeah. Well, that's a really good question because it's a really hard um, process and you've picked up that, you know, it's a lot of out of your hands. Uh, and I think that's the, the army's done a lot for me in mental resilience, you know, to deal with this, but it's also done a lot, um, that doesn't help because, you know, everything follows a bouncing ball process in the military and this doesn't. Um, so my mind went, as soon as I had diagnosis, I'm like, well, why the fuck am I not on a surgery table tomorrow and we're cutting this out? Why am I not starting chemo tomorrow? Why am I not like, what is the next step? What are we doing? What are we doing? Not yeah, we're going to watch and wait it and see what happens. That's that's not what you do. Um, you know, no, no, no point in the military do you, you know, watch and wait something that's going to kill you um, without, you know, taking some sort of decisive action at all. Um, you know, it's just against every part of my body uh, when it was really no, we need to take a step back uh, and, you know, watch and wait and see in the process. Um, and so much of it is out of your control. Uh, well, I wouldn't even say so much. There's no part of it other than your mental state that's within your control. It's the same yeah. part as people say, you know, you, you fight cancer. You, you don't fight cancer. You fight your mental health. Your body will do what it does no matter what. Um, you don't have, other than, you know, little things, but you don't have that much control over what the tumour does at all. Um, your battle, the fight in cancer, is against your own mind. Um, Did you identify that, that straight away, that that was the part that you were in control of? I think I didn't identify it straight away. Um, I think it was identified 
my oncologist, I was seeing him, you know, a couple of times a week, um, if not more. And I think he noticed a change in my personality uh, that he'd met me from the first time and then I got a referral to a um, psychologist from there. Um, and then the psychologist really brought up that that's, you know, he said you talk about like process so much of, you know, that you feel like you're not being, you're being left behind because nothing's happening. Um, he said you need to find something that is controllable for you and that re-gives a purpose. You know, at this point I was off work on sick leave um, and my purpose of being in the military was sort of diminishing Um you know, what is what becomes the purpose of someone with a an illness like this? Well, you need to refine it, um, refine what you can control and go from there. And I sort of found in those, you know, initial months that I can't control anything around my tumour, but I can control, um, I guess, treatment options available in the future for tumours and cancers um, through, you know, fundraising or whatever for um, research into these. Well, it's a really interesting way of doing it because, you know, As you said, when you're in the military, things are process-oriented and they're not about you, you know. Like Mm. there's not a lot of time that's spent making sure that Willow feels all right, you know. Um, You're doing something else. There's a sort of larger larger question. But, you know, the the problem that you'd been presented with was all about you and all of these people were going to be looking inward about your health and, uh, you know, what we were going to do next for you. Um, but it's really interesting that you've, uh, you know, with this fundraising piece that you've actually managed to go external again, be like, okay, how can we help people who are in the situation that I'm in and using me as an example for that? How, when did you identify that, that that's what you were going to do? Um, look, I couldn't put my finger exactly on, you know, when it became that, but I think it definitely became out of um, appointment with a psychiatrist being like, Willie, really, you're not a bucket list person. Um, you're a purpose driven and you need a purpose to get up in the morning, not an activity to do through the day Um, and like a long-term purpose. Uh, And I think from there it became, well, what am I able to do and that purpose be meaningful, um, you know, know, it'll be contributing to something greater than myself and that's, you know, the military is a fantastic purpose because, of course, you're contributing – something you're a very small cog in a very large machine you're contributing to something bigger than yourself um and that's where i found i guess the fundraising and exposure for um cancer research in particular brain cancer research um was i was a very small cog in a very large machine um but it made a real difference to people's lives um and a difference beyond a life of my own as well um so i couldn't tell you what when i first when i put my finger on that um, because originally my tyre flip fundraiser, the first one, all I wanted to do was, you know, beach PT session with my platoon um, down down and flip a tyre for a couple of Ks and raise – well, the initial GoFundMe was for $500. That's all I wanted to do. Mm. Um, and then, you know, people got on board and it, it blew up, you know, very large. Um, but that purpose was always the same. It wasn't ever a figure or a, um event. It was always to have – you know, it's a very – it's like the most selfish yet non-selfish thing you can do. Um, I'm getting so much out of it um, in the way of, you know, um, health for me. You know, I'm, I, I always tell people I get the most out of these events um, because it really makes me feel like I'm having a difference and that helps my physical and mental health so much. It, it just became a, a good thing and I started seeing a lot of changes and, you know, myself get 
particularly more healthy, um, not physically because I was on chemo, but in, in my own brain, that I'd re-found, you know, a reason um, for doing stuff. Are you a mindful type of person? Are you someone who, you know, meditates and who takes time to just sort of put your feet in the ocean and stuff like that? Or how, how are you dealing with the, you know, the, the, real, um, the real bottom down moments of, of chemo? Yeah, I, I wish I was. I, I wish I was more mindful um, and I wish I was more spiritual as well, but I'm not like any of, any of it because <laughs> um, I think it would be a lot easier process. Um, I think um, the, the bottom down moments for me was hanging on, um, you know, hanging on for a, the grass is greener sort of attitude of, well, this finishes, um, you know, I've got, you know, two more treatments left or this or that. Um, and there was a lot of hanging on and, and looking for greener pastures. Um, you know, but I'm definitely not, um, like I think a lot of people credit me or over credit me with the ability to overcome and resilience during those times um, that haven't seen how low the lows were, particularly, say, during the chemotherapy. Um, and the chemo really took me away from doing a lot of the stuff that I use as, I guess, a substitute for traditional meditation, you know, stuff like the gym and going for a run or a walk or, you know, even you know, distracting yourself going to work. Um, yeah. In the first months, yes, that was, um, you know, doable um, and something, you know, I could go for a walk or do this or do that. But in those last, because uh, I did 13 months of chemo, um, in the last, say, I don't know, seven months of it, maybe longer, that became unachievable. Um, I couldn't go to the – and I have a home gym at home, but I couldn't walk from my bed to the couch. I couldn't make it. I had to have a chair halfway and I had to have my parents support me walking because um, my body had become that weak. Um you know, there's, there's no way I'm going to be able to even lift a weight. Um, so it became, you know, that statutory sort of shit life um, rolling between the two. But it was always that um, – and I remember saying to my mum when she was helping me in and out of chemo, you know, um, wards and whatever, um, that I might be hopeless but I'm not helpless. Um, that Yes, I'm fucking hopeless. Like my body's fucking useless at the moment. But I'm not helpless. It's not that I can't still be helped to do something, to achieve something, to do, you know, to get up. Um, and that became just, you know, identifying the little bits and identifying an, an end. Um, and that, that got hard when the end, you know, where where I thought the end was kept getting pushed. Um, that, you know, I did three months of chemo and that was initially it. It was three months and then it got pushed to six. And then at six month mark when I thought I was done, it got pushed to nine. And then at nine it got pushed to 12, 13. Um, you know, that, that's very, um, very fucking draining. And, you know, those last months were just hanging on. Now, with the, the sort of medical ebb and flow, you know, you'd be getting diagnoses, you'd be getting little bits of information, you know, you'd get blood tests, you'd get, you know, scans and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, and it's sort of a little bit forward, a little bit back, all that sort of stuff. Are you Were you attentive to what was happening every single day as though it was like a footy season or something like that? Or were you like, that part is out of my hands, I'll worry about it when we get to thresholds? Um. I think I, I, I'd say I'd like to think I was very involved um, in my treatment, especially in the beginning. Um, but there was parts that I'm like, this is your job, doc. Just let me know what I need to do and give me the drugs or do this. Um, you know, there was a little bit of like, yeah, yep, tracking, uh, but I don't have the capacity to, you know, think about that at the moment, mate. Um, just let me know where to be, what to do and what to swallow or have sticks in my arm. 
Um, but I'd, I'd like to be involved as much as I could and I think it was hard not to be involved um, that much with what was going on of the amount of information coming down. Um, and I'd, I'd like to think that I've done a fair bit um, of my own research into, you know, my particular um, illness but as well as, you know, seeing three neurosurgeons at once, um, you know, through other appointments that I have a pretty vast understanding particularly of um, well, a lot of how these cancers work and how mine particularly works. The cancer that was in your, in your head was, you know, pretty big. Like you said, it was, um, it was larger than a golf ball. Um, what was the part of the brain that it was affecting? And, and could you recognise that there were, you know, symptoms outside of pain? Were, were there any psychological issues? Were there, were there any physiological issues? Was your brain being affected in another way? So this is probably the biggest thing that stumped the doctors so far is I've got no neurocognitive issues, like zero. Um, and this is something that stumps them to a degree because they say, look, if it was half the size, well, you could believe you don't have any, but at your at the size of yours, you should have some and I've got none. There's probably something I forgot in the previous conversation about my initial diagnosis of the headaches the headaches were ended up being completely unrelated. Um, I ended up seeing the neurosurgeon. He was like, mate, you should, this won't show as a headache. Like, is there anything else going on? Ended up getting a bloody referral to see um, a physio to do some dry needling on one of my shoulders that was a bit bung from work. Um, and that was causing the headache, was some tension in my traps and that was it. Um, so the headaches were not related, but, you know, through that unrelated um, product, then I got, you know, diagnosed with this, whether it saved my life or whatever, you know, whether you'd want to know or not is sort of out of the question because I do know. Um, you had no um, other symptoms. There was nothing else outside of these headaches that, that gave you any inkling that there was an issue going on. You didn't have balance nah. problems. There was nothing. Nothing at all. Um, and, you know, still to this day, I like to think I don't have any. Um, you know, sometimes yeah. I will get something, you know, I'll get pins and needles in my hand and think, oh, fuck. But then it, it goes. Um, same as I have, you know, sometimes I'll be standing there and be a little bit off balance. Oh, fuck and catch myself but but I don't think it's anything more than I think a lot of people have little little things like that um you know where your brain switches off for a sec um but you know as far as um neurocognitive issues that myself or my surgeons have seen I've got I've got nothing which can make it a little bit harder because you know I often talk that during chemo I felt like a cancer patient you know I I had the my do, my prog, sorry, my prognosis fit how I was feeling. Yep, I feel like a cancer patient. I feel like I'm dying. Probably easy to come to terms with it. Um, both before and after those treatments, particularly now that I feel so well, it's it's hard to believe it. I feel like I'm a bit of a fucking fraud because I, 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 it, it doesn't ring true. It's like, what do you mean I'm I'm this sick but feel this good? Like, how can I have such a fucking um, absolute horrific illness, um, you know, a terrible prognosis, but I feel completely fine. And I'm in the gym every day and I'm out drinking beers with the lads and I'm, you know, doing this and that. Um, how can they, it doesn't add up if that makes sense. And that can be a hard thing to get your head around. Yeah. But do, do you have the capacity to sort of go back and think about when you were sick and also think about when you were diagnosed and the panic and all that sort of stuff and say, okay, I won't feel this, uh, you know, survivor's remorse or whatever it is. You know, I won't feel bad about feeling good. I'll just be in the moment and being, feel good. Are you, yeah. are you capable of oh, doing yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I have to do. I have to look back and think, fuck, 
yeah, it was that bad. And I have to look back and be real, real with it too. You know, when you look back at something and you think, oh, that wasn't as bad as it was. And you, it's like a school camp. You're on a school camp and it's shit, but you get home a week later, yeah, that was really good. Um, you know, it can be easy to look back at the good times and things like that. Um, but I need to be real and look back and think, hang on, no, no, no. I lost 13, well, it was 13 months of chemo, but, you know, look at the, I'd say, you know, for the first three, four months after it, I felt, you know, terrible as well. So let's go 16, 17 months. I lost 17 months of my life sick when I was 21, well, sorry, 22 to 23 and a half. Um, like that's not a fucking good thing. Um, I, I must have been fucking crook because I was like, well, you know, I can get up out of bed with a pretty bad hangover and, you know, do something productive. But if I'm stuck in bed for a week, unable to watch TV because my mind can't deal with the distraction because it's too um, overwhelming for my senses, um, I must have been very fucking ill. You were saying that, yeah, you know, mindfulness is not something, it's something that you sort of wish you had uh, had, had more of. But, you know, like I follow you on Instagram and the um, the battle against the lawn, you know, gardening is ah. a very zen thing to do. What you're trying to create is sort of, you know, a perfect uh, a perfect carpet of green you know this is this is a very zen very zen goal to try and attend uh do you think that that, that that's something that's going on in your in your psyche um no i think it uh, it could be but i think i think it's more just it's a um it's a really fun interaction between myself um and you know my friends and followers um it's just something that, you know, people are – the, the interaction's fucking funny as because I'm having all these people from all around the world send me photos of their lawn and take the piss out of mine and doing all this stuff. Um, and, yeah, it's probably a distraction to some degree. But at the same point, um, it's a really, um, you know, lighthearted thing. But it's funny because yeah. I've had people as well hit me up and be like, um, the reason I love it, Willie, is you're using – you know, you're on social media and your primary fucking thing at the moment is trying to grow your lawn. And they said it's such a refreshing, almost fresh breath of air from social media at the moment because most of social media is someone trying to sell you something or a fucking election or this fucking coronavirus. Um, it's a it's a fresh relief just to look on and some dickhead's out in his front yard shooting his lawn like a gun with the fucking um, water. Um, so it's one of those things that just sort of grew. <laughs> it's just a it's just a bog piss take. So, so tell me about where you are at the moment. Um, you know, you've you've been fundraising. You've um, congratulations been uh, awarded the uh, Order of Australia. Um, you know, what are your goals? What are your what are your sort of plans? Where, where's where's your life at at the moment? Yeah, so right now, um, you know, I'm sort of getting used to that civvy life. Um, you know, getting used to not shaving every day and actually being able to do my own thing. Um, but you know, right now, um, it, it's very hard to make a lot of plans and stuff around. Um, around the virus that's cruising apparently. Uh, but I think I'm really waiting on the next scans, the next um, scans. I don't have the exact dates on me, but it's like early or mid-February um, is my three-monthly interval scan. Um, and that's always, you know, a bit of a um, foot up the arse of, yep, okay, this is happening. Um, this is real. You know, you better live life for the next three months. It's a it's a fantastic reminder every three months to keep living your life because yeah. it's, you know, it's bound to end at some point. Um but, you know, my, my long-term goal um, really is to do a lot of travelling and um, and media stuff. So, you know, I, I run a small vlog um, on my YouTube um, and really what I my 
primary goal is, and this is, you know, my Instagram bio, the first line is redefining terminal illness. Um, mm-hmm. And more what I want to do is follow my adventures being, you know, however great or small um, with this um, sort of around the world and, you know, domestically and whatever, um, you know, as some sort of like one, a bit of a diary for myself, but two, I guess proof that your life moves forward from here. You know, I think even if you heard on a movie, if if the fucking bad villain guy got a brain tumour, you'd be like, yep, well, he's dead. Um, that's no living on from there. Um, but I'd like, you know, to really show that, you know, well, it does go on. Um, and, you know, that'll outlive myself as well. So that's the main thing is, you know, getting into travelling and a lot of media stuff there. Um, that's the, you know, lot short to long-term goal. Um, but the short term is really getting the scan over and done with, you know, sorting out the final bits of civilian life. You know, like today I'm getting a, I'm getting, trying to get an ambulance cover today after this, like little things like yeah. that. Um, but then, you know, there'll always be an element of the fundraising and you know, whatever um, linked in with, with anything I do. My, my last question for you is, uh, you know, you were saying that you got the scan coming up and, you know, it's three months and, you know, you, you sort of got to remember to live. What does it mean to you to, to, to remember to live? What are the, what are the moments where you're like, okay, yes, this is living. This is me doing it. Um, I think the, the best moments to remember are the moments you didn't realize that you were in the moment when you were, when you almost wake up from it, you're like, Oh shit, I had, you know, I was living in the moment then with no outside distraction at all. Um, and I think that that's the things that I live for are those moments where you're that, you know, focus and in depth on a conversation or an activity or whatever that um, you were so just living in the moment. And those moments are so rare um, and so important to look back on and remember. Um, and, and But also more importantly to put yourself in situations where they can be created um, because you don't have those moments sitting in a lounge room having a beer um, but you do have them with your best friends out doing something. Um, or, you know, overcoming a problem or whatever. Um, so I think, you know, sort of seeking those, you know, once a year moments where you're truly living in that moment, um, that's something that really, really drives me and pushes me um, pushes me forward and that, that's what I really um, sort of live for, I guess. I'm going to let you go, but um, if you could just, uh, you know, tell us what your social handles are so people can, can find you, that'd be great. Yeah, so across all my socials um, is Willie Beating Cancer. Um, my, my primary socials are Instagram, YouTube and Facebook. Uh, but the best way to reach out to me um, is through my Instagram. Uh, I reply to all messages and comments, whatever. Um, and, I, you know, I would really love to hear from people and I, I do really appreciate all the support and, you know, I appreciate yourself having me on um, to talk a, bit of, talk a bit of shit on your podcast as well. Oh, mate, it's been such a pleasure. It's it's been great talking to you, and um, yeah, we just we wish you the best, and um, yeah, we'll check in again and and see what's going on in a few months' time. Absolutely, mate. I look forward to it. That was Matt Willie Williams, an inspiring bloke who I learned a lot from. Uh, that's it for this week's episode of A Theory of Mind. Uh, we have another interview coming next Wednesday, but before then, look out for a bonus podcast, something a little bit different. I'm Ben McKelvey, and until then, as always, follow your bliss. Mom? 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.